You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Well, we've come to the end of a rather intensive study of the three angels' messages, and uh, tonight we're going to be looking at the fourth angel's message, but I was just thinking, I, I did a seminar like this covering the same material at one camp, ma- camp meeting one time, and somebody came to me afterwards, and they said, this was interesting, Pastor, but it felt like I was trying to drink from a fire hydrant. I said, well, that's probably true, but at least you didn't go away thirsty, and hopefully you're not going away thirsty. I know there's a lot of information that we're sharing with you, but uh, take what you can, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to study this. And uh, There's so much in the Word of God. Uh, we can just study it 24 hours, it seems, and there's still new things that we can learn from the Bible. So we've looked at the three angels' messages. Our focus has been in Revelation chapter 14. We've pretty much gone through the entire chapter in one form or another. The last half of the chapter talks about the second coming of Christ. The first few verses of Revelation 14 talks about the 144,000. We've studied about that group. And then, of course, the first, second, and third angels' message. But this evening, we're going to be jumping from Revelation 14, and we're going to go to Revelation chapter 18, where we have another angel. And the reason we include the fourth angel as part of a seminar on the three angels' message is because the contents of the fourth angel is very similar to that of the second angel. So it's important for us to study the fourth angel if we're going to fully understand the experience described in the three angels' messages. So with that, we're going to begin in verse 1. Revelation chapter 18, and we're going to start in verse 1. It says, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven. Who, book, who wrote the book of Revelation? It was the Apostle John, and of course he's describing in Revelation what he sees, what he hears, what the Spirit of God reveals to him in vision. And so here in this vision, he sees an angel, another angel, in addition to the three, and of course there's other angels spoken of in Revelation, coming down from heaven. Now this angel is in addition to the three angels of Revelation 14, and represents God's people proclaiming God's last warning message just before probation closes. So the fourth angel also represents the people of God, as does the first, second, and third angel. The next part of the verse says, having great authority. The proclamation of the message is empowered by a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So this fourth angel represents God's people taking the final warning message, but it also talks about them being filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's some interesting verses that talk about the promise of the latter rain. I know we as Adventists, we like to talk about the need for the latter rain. And yes, we need the Holy Spirit. We need the latter rain. But we need to remember the purpose of the latter rain is to empower us to proclaim the message. You know, Jesus told his disciples at the time of his ascension, he said, um, you need to take this gospel to all the world. But he said, before you go, you need to tarry in Jerusalem until you receive power from the Holy Spirit. So you can imagine the disciples leaving that sacred spot. There they witnessed Jesus ascending to heaven, and now they go back to Jerusalem, probably back in that same upper room, and they're there and they're praying for the Holy Spirit. Now, they are praying for what reason? Why do they want the Holy Spirit? Well, Jesus had just given them the Great Commission. 
How were they, just a handful of believers, to take the gospel to all the world? They began to realize in their own strength it was impossible. They needed supernatural help. They needed the Spirit of God. So burdened with this great commission, they came together. They um, forgave one another. They became as one, united in this mission of taking the gospel to the world. Then the Holy Spirit came upon them with power. So today we talk a lot about the need of the latter rain, and we want the Holy Spirit, we want the latter rain, but why? Do we just want it so that we can feel warm or fuzzy? Is that the reason? No. We are seeking the latter rain so that we can fulfill the mission that Jesus has given the Adventist church. Amen? That's why we're seeking the latter rain, because there are souls out there in the world that need to hear that Jesus is soon to come. Now here's a few verses that talk about the latter rain. James chapter 5, verse 7. Speaking of the second coming, he says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently until it receives the early and the latter rain. Now you'll recall in our study of Revelation 14, the last half of the chapter that pictures Jesus coming. He's coming in the clouds of heaven, and he has a sharp sickle in his hand. You remember that? And he's coming to reap the harvest of the earth. I mentioned earlier I spent some time in the mission field growing up in Swaziland, and I remember out in front of our house we would have this tall grass. They called it elephant grass. And I remember it could grow four feet. I mean, it was just amazing. And uh, it would grow very rapidly in that tropical-type environment, lots of rain, lots of heat. And uh, when it came time to cut the grass, the grass was so tall you couldn't use you know, a regular lawnmower. You'd have to actually go get a sickle, and you could buy sickles there in the store, and you would actually cut the grass with a sickle, almost as if you're harvesting wheat. So I know what a sickle's like. I've actually used it before, cutting elephant grass there in the mission field. But here Jesus is pictured as coming with a sharp sickle, and he's also about to cut something. A harvest is to take place. There are two types that are harvested. You've got the wheat, representing the righteous. They're placed in the barn, which represents heaven. And you have the grapes that are gathered and thrown into the wine press of the wrath of God, representing judgment that comes upon the wicked. So there's a harvest. The second coming is often connected to a harvest. And here James says, talking about the second coming, he says it's like a farmer who is waiting for the harvest, and there are two things that's needed, the early rain and the latter rain. Now, the early rain, we've identified that as being a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the early days of the Christian movement. There in the upper room, talk about Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, and in one generation, they turned the world upside down. Now, throughout history, there have been special outpourings of the Holy Spirit, but what we're talking about here is a very special end-time outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's going to empower the church in the proclamation of the gospel. So the early rain we've identified as Pentecost. The latter rain is to come just before the close of probation and empower the church to fulfill what's described in Revelation 18, a mighty angel taking the gospel to the world. Now, here's an interesting verse coming from the Old Testament. This is Joel, often quoted when talking about the latter rain. It says, It shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy, old men dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Notice the portion of the verse there in yellow. It says, in the Old Testament, I will pour out my spirit. 
Now, when Peter quotes this verse on Pentecost, you'll notice there's a slight difference. Verse 17, Acts chapter 2, verse 17, this is Pentecost. Peter says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, he's quoting from Joel, saith God, or says God, that I will pour out of my spirit. You notice the difference? So Joel says, I will pour out my spirit. Peter says, I will pour out of my spirit. In other words, Pentecost was not the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy that was made in Joel. It was a partial fulfillment of the prophecy, but there is more of a fulfillment. There is a broader, deeper, fuller application of the prophecy of a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the latter days. And of course, you finish that passage in Joel, it talks about the great and dreadful day of the Lord. We know that to be the second coming. Also, we find in the Old Testament in Zechariah, Zechariah 10 verse 1, it says, Ask the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. Notice that there is a time when we are to earnestly seek for the latter rain. It says, The Lord will make flashing clouds, that's lightning. Uh, he will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. So here the verse tells us that we ought to be asking for the latter rain in the time of the latter rain. Are we living in the time of the latter rain? As we begin to see prophecy fulfilled around us, we ought to be asking, Lord, please give us of your spirit. And yes, it will come. It will come with power. The Bible says it's going to happen. The question is, are we going to be amongst those who receive the latter rain? We've been told by the pen of inspiration that there will be some in the church that are filled with the Holy Spirit and with power, and there are others in the church that have not longed for the gift, who have not been burdened with the message or the mission to take the message to the world, who will not receive the latter rain in its fullness. So even within the church, there will be those who receive the latter rain and those who don't receive the latter rain. Thus the Bible says, pray for the latter rain. And recognize the reason for the latter rain is to empower us to take the gospel to the world. Okay, Revelation chapter 18 verse, 18, verse 1. This angel is seen coming down from heaven. It says, The earth was illuminated with his glory. This glory is a manifestation of the character of God as revealed through his people. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, he had a very bold request. He asked the Lord, Please show me your glory. That's Exodus 33 verse 18. A bold request, Lord, show me your glory, verse 19. Then he, God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. So Moses said, Lord, show me your glory, and God said, all right, I will show you my glory, but somehow it's connected with my name. What do names represent in Bible prophecy? It represents character. So what is the glory of God? It is a revelation of his character. Are you with me? So when the Bible tells us in the first angel's message, fear God, give him glory, how do we give God glory? It is a revelation of his character. And this fourth angel in Revelation chapter 18, it says he fills the earth. He lightens up the earth with the glory of God, a revelation of God's character through his people. Of course, the 144,000 that we've studied in Revelation 14 Verse 1, it says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his Father's name written in their foreheads. 
So the redeemed will have the Father's name. They will have the character of God reflected in their hearts and in their lives. Verse 2, this fourth angel, he cries with a mighty loud voice or a strong voice, depending upon your translation. This angel repeats the second angel's message, but with much greater power. Now, you remember last night we spoke about that? We talked about the first angel in Revelation 14 having a, what kind of a voice? He's got a loud voice, and we spoke about the third angel having a loud voice. We spoke about that last night, if anyone worships the beast in his image and so on. But then you get to the second angel in Revelation 14, and the announcement is simply made, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Isn't it interesting that now we find this fourth angel in Revelation chapter 18? In essence, he's saying the same thing. He's adding a few more details, but the message is now given with a loud voice. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. What made the difference? The latter rain. Are you with me? Remember, the three angels' message not only represents our message as a whole, but it also represents three phases of the Advent movement. When the first angel's message was proclaimed, the hour of his judgment has come, that refers to some degree, it's true today, but it referred in a special sense to the proclamation that occurred around 1844 and shortly thereafter. The judgment hour has come. That message was proclaimed with a loud voice. And the third angel's message that talks about the beast and about people receiving his mark, that message will be proclaimed with a loud voice. Even though we preach it now, it has a special future application. But today, the church is in a spiritual, lukewarm condition. Maybe that's why the second angel doesn't have that loud of a voice. Nevertheless, the message must be given. Now notice, this, this is interesting. After the second angel says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that's all he says. And then the third angel says, if anyone worships the beast in his image. But when the fourth angel in Revelation 18 says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, has become the dwelling place of demons and so on and so forth. After the message is given, the very next thing that we're going to look at in a minute is there is a voice heard from heaven that says, come out of her, my people. Now, who's the voice calling from heaven? That's Jesus. But in order for Jesus to call his people, and he's got people out there in Babylon, in order for Jesus to call his people to come out of religious confusion, what is he asking us to do? To give the message. You understand? See how important the proclamation of the message is? It gives people an opportunity to hear the voice of Jesus calling them to come out of religious confusion. Thus, we have an important work to do. All right, Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, talks about the second angel, and as mentioned, he simply says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. All right, back to verse 2, Revelation 18, 2. It says, and he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. How many times does Babylon fall? There are two falls. Now, remember, it's not just repeated for emphasis, although sometimes in the Bible, if you want to emphasize something, you repeat it. But here, it's very significant. It's repeated two times because there are two parts to Babylon. A revelation tells us over here in chapter 17, verse 5, and on her forehead was a name written, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. So there's two parts to Babylon. There is the mother church, and then there are the daughter churches. And the daughter churches are holding to the same teachings and traditions of the mother church. There is a fall of the mother church, 
and there was also a fall of the daughter churches. So Babylon fell once, and then Babylon falls again. Now, oh, I'll get to that in a minute. Okay. Let me talk about prophetic time, because this is maybe helpful for us. In the Bible, we find something that we call probationary prophetic time periods. And there is a pattern established in the Bible. It's very interesting. For example, the first probationary time period that we find is in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, and it is the 120 years. Genesis 6, 3 says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. So that's a probationary time period that God gave those before the flood, the antediluvian world. So here we have a time period, 120 years, but at the end of the time period, what's interesting is God raised up a messenger with a message. That was Noah. Of course, he built the ark, but at the same time he was preaching. There was a warning saying probationary time is coming to an end. Judgment is soon to come, and a remnant was called out. Eight people entered into the ark. And then the door of probation closed, and then judgment came. You understand the pattern? You've got a time period. At the end of the time period, a messenger is raised up. A message is given. A remnant is called out. Probation closes and judgment falls. That's the pattern that we see established. Now, if you look at some of the other time periods, it's interesting. You see this repeated. You have the 400 years that we read about in Genesis 15. And God said to Abraham, or Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. There's the time period. And also that nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So the children of Israel went into Egypt. They were there for 400 years. At the end of that probationary time period, God raised up a messenger, Moses. And the message was to let Israel go. Pharaoh refused. Judgment fell. A remnant was called out. You see the pattern that's established? Then, of course, we have another time period. Jeremiah chapter 25, we've got the 70 years, talking about the time period when Israel would be in Babylonian captivity. It says, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then it will come to pass, when the 70 years are complete, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. So for 70 years, the children of Israel... They were in Babylon. At the end of that time period, God raised up the gift of prophecy. He raised up messengers, Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, and others. A remnant was called out. A remnant was called to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the city. And, of course, judgment fell upon Babylon. Babylon was eventually conquered by Medo-Persia. So the pattern is the same. Then, of course, we have the 70 weeks or the 490 years that we read about in Daniel 9.24. And, of course, the verse is 70 weeks are determined upon your people and upon your city. This is the probationary time that God had given to the Jewish people as a whole. That began in 457 B.C. with the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. It ended at the stoning of Stephen in 34 A.D. That was the end of that probationary time period. After that, a remnant was called out prior to 34 A.D. The prime focus of evangelism for the apostles was the Jews. Now, there were a few Gentiles that were also converted, but primarily their focus was the Jews. They were pretty much focused in Jerusalem and surrounding area. 
But after 34 AD, suddenly now we find the gospel going to the Gentile world. And probation as a whole closes for the Jewish nation. A remnant of the Jews are called out. And finally, judgment comes in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, here's where it gets interesting. There are two other significant time periods of probationary time. The one is what we call the 1260 days or years. Remember, one prophetic day is equal to one literal year. This 1260-year time period, we read about in Revelation 12, verse 6, and there's many other verses that talk about this. It says, Then the woman, the church, fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1260 days. So this 1260 days or years represents a time period from 538 till 1798. That was the probationary time period that God had given for the Roman church to receive the message that came through the reformers when the Roman church finally decided to stay with tradition and reject the teachings of the Bible. Her probationary time as a church ended a remnant was called out. We call that the Protestant Reformation. They came out. Remember when Martin Luther began to protest against the problems, the heresies in the church? It was not his goal to create a separate church. He wanted to bring reformation to the church. But when the church rejected those Bible truths, there was nothing left but to come out of her. And of course, judgment came upon the Vatican or the Roman power in 1798 when she lost her political power, uh, papal states were confiscated, the Pope was taken prisoner. Now, of course, we know that deadly wound is to be healed, and we begin to see that happening even today. But there's another very interesting time period, the 2300 days of Daniel 8.14. And he said unto me, after 2300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. That time period began in 457 B.C., and it ended in 1844. Now, what's interesting is the first fall of Babylon, that's a reference to the Roman church. The second fall of Babylon has a special reference to those Protestant churches that came out of Romanism, but coming up to 1844, there was an urgent message, and God raised up a number of messengers, William Miller and others, who preached a judgment hour message. Primarily the focus of the early Advent believers and preachers was towards Protestants, it wasn't towards Catholics. It was as if a special message was being given to the Protestant churches, especially in North America. But most of the churches, as we know, rejected the message. Matter of fact, all of the established churches of the day rejected the message of the Adventists until finally there was nothing due but to come out, and a remnant came out of those Protestant churches. And that's why we are here today. We're here because a remnant came out. So the first fall references the mother church, Rome. The second fall references her daughters, those Protestant churches that have clung to the same tradition, traditions and teachings of the mother church. Now, you know, there are some people that say, oh, there's problems in the Adventist church. And there's even some people, you've probably heard this, that call the church Babylon. You say, well, the Adventist church has gone too far. It is now Babylon. But friends, you need to remind them that Babylon only falls two times. It's already happened. It's already happened. Yes, the church might have its problems, but according to Bible prophecy, Jesus is going to see 
it through. Amen? Amen. Don't jump ship just because you're going through some difficult waters. Stay on board. Amen? Amen. Christ is going to see his church through. Okay, so those are our prophetic probationary time period. That's why Babylon falls twice. It says, and she has become the dwelling place of demons, a prison of every foul spirit, a cage of every unclean and hated bird. This is the description of the spiritual condition of the churches that make up symbolic Babylon. And here's a couple of verses that describe what's happening in Christianity today. Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, that's the last days, that's our time, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and the doctrines of demons. Amazing. Speaking lies. Hypocrisy. Having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. And then Jeremiah describes our time. He says, verse 26, uh, Jeremiah 5, 26, For among my people, notice Jesus has got people even in Babylon, For among my people are found wicked men, they lie in wait as one who sets snares, they set a trap, they catch men. Now look at verse 27. As a cage is full of birds, so are their houses or their churches full of deceit. Remember what the fourth angel said? It says it's as if they become a cage of every hateful and unclean bird. What is it talking about birds? Well, it's a reference here to Jeremiah. It's describing the spiritual condition that's happening in many churches. It talks about men who are, um, well, let me read the next part of the verse. It says, they have become great and grown rich. Oh, how true that is today. How true that is today of many evangelical churches where the pastor is so extremely rich, he lives in a mansion and he drives a Rolls Royce and he flies his personal jet and then he tells his people who are struggling to pay their bills, they need to step out in faith and plant a seed and give him some more money. That's not Jesus. That's not the teaching of Jesus. A prosperity gospel, that's not the gospel of Jesus. And that's what the Bible is warning people about. Verse 3 goes on and says, For all nations have drank the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Wine in the Bible represents false teachings. If it's pure grape juice, it represents Christ's teaching or his atoning sacrifice. Her fornication is using political power to enforce her doctrines. You see, the church is to be married to Christ. But when the church leaves her allegiance to Jesus and looks to the state to enforce her teachings, she is guilty of committing spiritual fornication. James tells us in James chapter 4, verse 4, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't be looking to the state to try and enforce what you think God wants. You can't do that. The church can't be looking to the state to enforce her teachings. Uh, verse 3 continues, The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. The great son of Babylon is looking to the kings of the earth to enforce her teachings. When we see religious leaders lobbying Congress for religious laws, we can know that the end is near. Pay attention to what's happening in our world. Look at what's happening in our politics. When you hear re religious voices pushing for religious laws, the end is near. Now, here is an incredible story that we find in uh, the Gospels. 
It's the story of Herod, Herodias, John the Baptist. And I think there's many lessons that we can learn from this story. Here it is in Mark chapter 6, starting verse 17. I'll read a verse, we'll talk about it and move through. Uh, verse 17 says, For Herod himself had sent and laid hold on John, John the Baptist, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. So Herod's the king, he represents the state. You have John the prophet representing God's people, the church. You have Herodias, a woman in Bible prophecy represents the church. If she's a pure woman, represents the true church. If she's a corrupt woman, she represents an apostate church. And it's interesting, it says that Philip arrested John, put him in prison because uh, John had said that you can't take Herodias to be a wife because she actually was married to Herod's brother. Verse 18, because John had said, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now look at verse 19. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. Verse 20. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. So the state is protecting John. That's a good thing. It says, And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Now, verse 21. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast and his nobles and high officers and the chief men of Galilee. So it's his birthday, he has this big feast. It's as if Herodias is waiting for the perfect time, and finally it comes. There are those waiting in the wings to begin to put pressure on legislation or legislators to pass certain religious laws, but they are waiting for the perfect time. They're waiting for the perfect time. And then it says, verse 22, and when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. Oh. So here you have Herodias wanting to get rid of John, but she has to get through Herod, the king. You have a religious power, the church, wanting to destroy God's faithful person or people, but the state is standing in the way. So you have Herodias working through her daughter to influence the king to persecute the prophet. Now remember we spoke about Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Revelation 17 says she's the mother of harlots. So you have the mother church, and she is going to work through her daughter churches, those apostate Protestant churches that are holding to the same traditions as the mother church. They are the ones that are going to put pressure at a convenient time on the government to pass certain laws that end up persecuting God's true faithful followers. You see the picture that's set here? An amazing parallel. Well, look what happens. Verse 23. He also swore to her that whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? So it's the Protestant churches in the United States that eventually will go back to the mother church, Rome, and say, all right, what do we want? What do we want? We've got the government in the palm of our hands. We're ready to pass the law. What do we want? And in this case, and she said, I want the head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in in haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Verse 26, it says, And the king was exceedingly sorrow, yet because of the oath and because of those who sat with him, he did not refuse. 
And immediately the king sent an execution and commanded him that his head be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. So you can see the power that was behind the persecution of John the Baptist. So likewise, we see a parallel in Bible prophecy where we have the mother church working through her daughter churches to influence the state to persecute those who refuse to go along with her traditions. So history repeats itself. Last part of verse 3. It says, The merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of the luxuries. These merchants represent those who promote the teachings and policies of Babylon the Great uh, for financial reasons. And we've also spoken about how that being part of Babylon has financial benefits, especially as you near the end of time. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, he says, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Verse 15, Therefore it is no great thing, for his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So the Bible warns us that in the last days, not every building that has a cross on its steeple is necessarily God's true church. Are you with me? Not every person who gets up to preach is doing so for the right reason. So the Bible is telling us, be careful. And then verse 4, after the message is given, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. Now who's the one that's saying, come out of her, my people? It is Jesus himself. Nearly till the very end or the close of probation, some of God's people have not heard the call to come out of Babylon. All who are indeed Christ will listen to his voice and they will heed his call. Now here's a verse that we find in John chapter 10, verse 16. This is Jesus making a prophecy and he says, Other sheep I have that are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. Notice the next part. They will hear... What does it say? They will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. In order for them to hear the voice of Jesus, according to Revelation chapter 18, what must first be given? Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Are you with me? The proclamation of the three angels' messages, it's that message that opens the way for people to hear the voice of Jesus calling them to come out of religious confusion and to make their stand upon Bible truth. And friends, as Adventists, let's not forget, let's not forget the importance of the proclamation of the three angels' messages. I travel from place to place and sometimes people say, you know, let's not preach the three angels' messages anymore. Let's not talk about Babylon being fallen, being fallen. That's not popular. Don't talk about the beast. Don't scare people by talking about the mark. And I think to myself, how is Jesus going to be able to call people out of religious confusion if we refuse to give the very message that Jesus has asked us to give, right? We've got a work to do. People want to know the truth. If you're in a building and the building catches on fire and lives are at risk and you need to give the warning message for people to leave the building, are you going to do so in a timid voice? Are you going to do so not to offend? Now, we don't want to purposely offend anyone. 
But when it's a matter of life and death, there should be a passion and an urgency in the message. Are you with me? We're talking about eternal life here. There needs to be a passion and urgency in the proclamation. Proclamation of the three angels' messages. Goes on to say, lest you share her sins. Come out of her, my people, lest you share her sins. The great sin of Babylon is the union of church and state and persecuting God's people. Jesus said in John 16, 1 and 2, These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God a service. We know that that's going to happen even in our time. Jesus says, I've warned you, don't, don't lose faith. Uh, even if you're not popular in the last days, stay faithful to the word of God. That's the place to be. The warning is lest you receive other plagues. The plagues of Babylon are, of course, the seven last plagues recorded in Revelation 16. These plagues will fall upon those who place tradition above the authority of the Bible. There it is. There it is. In the last days, the issue is going to revolve around worship. Are we going to worship according to man-made tradition? Or are we going to worship according to a thus saith the Lord? You know, we need to be people of the book, brothers and sisters. Early Adventists were known to be people of the book. There were those that said, I don't, dis I, I don't agree with everything they have to say, but one thing you can't disagree is they know their Bibles. <laughs> they know the words. We need to be people of the book. Mark chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus says, Making the word of God of none effect through your traditions, which you have handed down. That's the problem that's happening in the last days. Now, I want to, I want to encourage you, because there are many faithful men and women in Babylon who are just longing for someone to bring them the message. They have questions in their mind. They don't understand why the church is doing things uh, that's contrary to the Bible. They don't understand these things. And they're looking for someone to bring them the light of truth. I got up to preach one time in uh, one of my churches. It was actually in Iowa. And I looked out on the congregation, and there was a young man sitting there, and he had a, he had a black T-shirt on, and written on the T-shirt was ACDC. Well, I knew enough to know that he was not an electrician, but ACDC was a music band. And I was surprised. I'd never seen him before. And I, I thought, well, I'm glad he's here at church. Well, afterwards, I was shaking his hand. And I, I asked, I introduced myself. I asked him, you know, glad you're here. How did you hear about the church? He said, oh, I looked you guys up in the phone book. It's a number of years ago when you had phone books. He said, I looked you up in the phone book. And I said, oh, wow, okay. So uh, can I come by and visit you this week? I was curious. He said, sure, come on by. Well, I went over and visited with him. Come to find out he was the local rock and roll radio station disc jockey. And he was playing all the music. And he said to me, you know, when you walk through the store and you hear the radio playing and, and the voice come on announcing the songs, he says, that's me, that's what I do. And I was so curious. I said, well, then how did you hear about our church and what brought you to our church? He said, well, here's the thing. My father bought a satellite dish. This is still in the days of the analog dishes. You remember that? And you'd have this big dish that would move. And his father bought this, this analog satellite dish, and he was flicking through the channels one day, and what do you know, he saw uh, a gentleman uh, by the name of Doug Batchelor. He said, he, oh, my father saw a bald man preaching, and I knew who it was right away. Uh, and he was preaching, and his father began to watch these sermons, and he said, man, I've never heard this before. 
He, the father contacted Amazing Facts, ordered all of the VHS tapes in those days, came in a big box. The father watched it. He got so convicted, he sent all of the tapes to his son, who was in my town. His father lived in a different town. And the son who was working at the radio station, he wasn't interested in religion. He wasn't interested in religion. But one day, he came home, and he had nothing to do, and he was feeling somewhat discouraged. He said, well, let me take a look at one of these tapes. It sat there for months before he actually put it in. He began to watch the first one. He watched the next one, the next one. And then somehow he jumped a tape and he ended up on the Sabbath. He watched the Sabbath presentation. It was Friday night. He opened the phone book to look for a local Seventh-day Adventist church. He had to come check this out. Well, to make a long story short, I had the privilege of baptizing him, baptized his fiance, and today this gentleman, he actually went back to school, studied theology. He is pastoring in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. There are people out there that are searching for truth. Uh, that's why I believe there is power. Do everything you can to get the word out. Use media, use whatever you can to share the good news that Jesus is coming soon. Amen? All right, let me finish up here. Uh, verse 5 says, For her sins have reached heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Probationary time for the world is about to end, and God is calling his people to come out of religious apostasy. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. It says, And at that time Michael shall stand up. Who's Michael here in Daniel 12? It's Jesus, prophetic name of Jesus. At that time Jesus, or Michael, shall stand up. And it says, The prince who stands, the great prince who stands, watch over the sons of your people, and there will be such a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone that is found written in the book. That is the pre-advent of the investigative judgment. You see, what Daniel 12 verse 1 is talking about is the close of probation. When this pre-advent or investigative judgment that we read about in the first angel's message, when that is finished, then Jesus finishes his high priestly ministry. He stands up and he makes the declaration, he that is holy, let him be holy still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. Probation closes. There is the time of trouble, the seven last plagues, but it says God's people will be delivered, everyone found written in the book. So there is an urgency to get the message out to the world because the clock is ticking. Probation is going to close. Amen? Jesus is going to come. And we want to tell people Jesus is coming soon. Verse 6 talks about the judgments coming upon Babylon. It says, render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works. Literally give her to the limit. Babylon is to be repaid in full for her evil deeds. The last part says, in the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. Her treatment of others will be the standard by which God deals with her. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, verse 45, Then he answered to them and saying, Surely I say unto you, as much as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. And then it goes on, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So he's talking about judgment coming. Notice it says everlasting punishment, not everlasting punishing. You understand the difference, right? What is the everlasting punishment of the wicked? Eternal death. What is the reward? The everlasting reward of the righteous? Eternal life. But Jesus says judgment is going to come the way you treated other people. If you treated them like Jesus, you're going to be rewarded for that in heaven. 
because Jesus comes and his rewards are with him to give to every man according to his deeds. But people who have been mean, people who have not treated others lovingly, and they've rejected the gospel and they've rejected Christ, there is a day of reckoning, there is a judgment that is coming. Verse 7, In the measure that she has glorified herself and lived uh, luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. Babylon deceives herself and others in thinking that she is Christ's bride, but in reality she is a harlot. The last part of verse 7, For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am no widow. Uh, I will see no sorrow. These churches will continue to profess Christ and speak much of religion, but the Lord has forsaken them. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who what? He who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? That is, preach, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name, even miracles. And Jesus will say, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, he who practiced, what's the next verse? Lawlessness, that is setting aside God's law for man-made tradition. Isaiah chapter 4 verse 1 is a description of the church today. This is an amazing verse. Isaiah 4 1, it says, In that day seven women, what is a woman representing Bible prophecy? A church. Seven women will take hold of one man. Who do you suppose that one man is? represents Jesus. You'll see here in just a minute. In that day, seven women will take hold of one man saying, we will eat our own bread. What does bread represent in the Bible? Represents the Word of God. We will wear our own apparel. What does apparel represent? All right, righteousness. So we got our own righteousness. Only let us be called by thy name. We want to be a Christian church. Politically, it's advantageous, but we'll eat our own bread. We'll wear our own apparel. Let us be called by your name. That's what's happening in the Christian world today. That's what's happening in the churches. Our last verse, verse 8. Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death, mourning, and famine. The form of the Greek word translated day emphasizes the suddenness of the plagues. And if one day is taken as prophetic time, that would represent a period of about one year. So after probation closes, you have the seven last plagues falling, Roughly the time frame of one year. Incidentally, one of the plagues is an intense heat. It's probably going to be the hottest summer on record. But God's people are going to be protected. Psalm 91, no plague will come nigh thy dwelling. We can trust in Jesus. He will take care of us when that time comes. It says, and she will be utterly burned with fire under the sixth plague. The nations that once supported Babylon will suddenly withdraw their support and they will turn against her with violence. And Revelation describes this in chapter 16, verse 12. It says, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Now, of course, this is a symbolic passage here. You have ancient Babylon, the city of Babylon. You have the kings of the east, King Medo-Persia, coming along Cyrus and his armies in order for them to conquer Babylon to allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem, the river had to be dried up. So symbolically now, 
Here we're talking about a coalition of religious and political leaders uniting in opposition against God's commandment, keeping people at the end. But judgment is coming. Water in Bible prophecy represents multitudes of nations and kings. A time will come when the nations, when the people will realize that they have been deceived by these religious leaders, by these religious institutions, and they will withdraw their support. They will even turn against their religious leaders and against these powers that have misled them and that prepares the way for the kings of the East. The kings of the East symbolizes Jesus coming with his angels, coming to set his people free and take us back to the new Jerusalem. Jesus is coming again. Last part of verse 8, For strong is the Lord who judges her. God has always warned men, saints and sinners alike, of an impending crisis. For example, Noah's warning of the flood, Moses' warning of the plagues of Egypt, Jonah's warning to the people of Nineveh, and Jesus' warning of impending destruction for Jerusalem. And so today, as we stand on the eve of earth's final hour, because God is a God of love and consistency, we should expect a great message of warning to be going out to the world right now. Just before the close of probation and the second coming of Christ, there is a message that has to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Amos 3.7 says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. God always warns. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach to those that dwell upon the earth, to every nation, kindred, and tongue, people. That's why we are here. That's why God has raised up the Adventist movement. You see, the Adventist church, bear with me now, the Adventist church was not raised up for Adventists. The Adventist church was raised up for Baptists, for Presbyterians, for Catholics, for people of no faith at all. The Adventist church was raised up to proclaim God's last warning message to prepare the world for the second coming of Christ. Are you with me? We as a movement don't exist because we like to get together on a regular basis and come to nice churches. That's not why we exist. We exist as a movement, as a people, to prepare people for the second coming of Jesus. No other church is proclaiming this message. And friends, if, if we don't do that, who will? Who will? Here's a very sobering statement found in Testimonies, Volume 9. In a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been setting the world as watchmen and light bearers. To them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. On them is shining wonderful light from the Word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the first, second, and third angels' messages. There is no other work of so great an importance. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. There it is. That's why we are here. Raised up by God to proclaim a message. Now you might say, well, Pastor Ross, that's all great and dandy, but I'm no evangelist. Yes, but you can pray. I'm no preacher, but you can share with your family and with your friends. Uh, but I can't get up and lead an evangelistic series. No, but you can help financially to support an evangelistic series. Are you with me? There is something for all of us to do. 
in proclaiming this end-time warning message to the world. Friends, people need to hear Jesus is coming soon. I got up to preach in one of my churches. It was a small church. I was pastoring in Iowa. I started my ministry in Iowa. And I went to church one Sabbath morning. And Oh, we probably had about 40, 50 people. There wasn't a big church, but small community. And I was sitting on the platform waiting to get up and preach. And the elder that was sitting next to me, he, he leaned over and he whispered to me. He said, you see that young family sitting there? Husband, wife, and I think they had two little kids that were sitting there. He said, that's the pastor of the Church of Christ. Now, the biggest church in that town was the Church of Christ. It was a vibrant church, big church, growing church, a lot happening. That was the place. And I thought, well, this is interesting. I wonder why the pastor of the Church of Christ is coming to my church on a Sabbath morning. Well, I got through preaching my sermon. At the end, I was shaking everybody hand, everyone's hands, and he came up, and I shook his hand. I introduced myself. He introduced himself, and he said, you know, I'm the pastor of the, of the Church of Christ. And then he leaned in a little bit closer, and he said to me, I want to know, can I be a member of your church? That surprised me. I said to him, can, can I come visit you this week? He said, sure, sure. So I went over to, to visit him, uh, and I visited him in his office in the church. Big, beautiful church, modern church. I pulled up in the driveway and got up, walked in there. I came into his office and was sitting there, and uh, we chatted for a little bit. And then I said, now, now if I understood correctly, you, you were asking if you could be a member of my church? He said, yes. He said, I've been reading. And he picked up the great controversy. He said, I've been reading and I've been convicted. I've been studying the Bible. I'm convicted on the Sabbath. I want to know if I can be a member of your church. He says, I still think God has a work for me to do in my church, but I want to know, can I attend your church on, Sab on Sabbath or Saturday? He said, and then I'll preach in my church on Sunday. I said, sure. I said, well, let's study together. So we started Bible studies. And sure enough, he started coming to my church every Sabbath. And then he would take stuff from my sermon and he would preach it to his church on Sunday. He was a very enthusiastic pastor, very energetic, good speaker. The church was full. Of, I remember he did a series on the Ten Commandments. And after commandment number one, you should have heard the amens in that congregation. Much enthusiasm. After the second, boy, even more so, people were coming. The third, boy, that was fantastic. He held his breath, prayed, and said, here we go, Lord. Preach the fourth commandment. He could have hit a pin drop in his congregation. <laughs> his phone rang shortly after that sermon. And the elders of the church said, Pastor, we need, we need to have a meeting. We need to have a meeting. He called me up. He said, Pastor, what do I do? I said, well, just let the Lord lead. So he went to this meeting, and it was a church business meeting. And this word got out in town that this pastor, he was like the big guy there, and word got out that he's starting to preach Adventist theology and the church was packed and everyone's there for this church business meeting. And uh, the elder, the head elder got up and said, Pastor, we really appreciate everything that you've done for our church. You've built it up. But, um, you know, you, you, can't, you can't be preaching about the Sabbath, <laughs> he said. And the pastor, a friend of mine, he says, but didn't you hire me to preach the Bible? And they said, yes, we did, but not all the Bible. There's some stuff we don't want to hear. And they said, all right, I'll tell you what, we're going to give you a chance. You think about it for a few moments, and, and then we're going to make our decision. So they said, all right, give me a few moments. He went back into his office. He knelt down, and he was praying. He said, Lord, what do I do? What do I do? And later when he told me the story, he, he felt convicted. He, in his mind's eye, he saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing on the plain of Dura. And he said, my time has come. I need to stand for Jesus.
And he walked down in front of his congregation and he said to them, brothers and sisters, it's been such a privilege to be able to be your pastor. But my first loyalty is to the Word of God and to Jesus. I need to stand on the Ten Commandments. Well, needless to say, he lost his job. I got the call the next day and the pastor said, man, I, I don't know what to do. Now, uh, he was employed by his local congregation. That's where his salary came from. And he had a young family. He had needs. He said, don't worry, the Lord will provide. Well, a day after this whole experience happened, another church of God in a different city called him, and apparently there was a member in his church that had gone down to this other church and said, we've got a young pastor that preaches the word of God. You need to hire him for your church. Called me up and said, what do I do? I've got this invitation to go pastor this other church. I said, well, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to go preach the word of God to them. And so he did. Preach the word of God. Friends, Jesus has faithful children scattered in every church, in every denomination, hungry for the word of truth. And here we are sitting with, with such a treasure trove of Bible truth. And we need to share it with the world. So my call at the end of all of this is, yeah, we spoke about the beast, and we spoke about Babylon, we spoke about the problems, we spoke about prophecy, but at the end of the day, Jesus is coming. We want to be ready when Jesus comes. We want others to be ready when Jesus comes. And friends, perhaps there is something in your heart and in your life that, that like Babylon, you're, you're holding on to. No, it's, it's, not a, it's not a false doctrine. But maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a practice. Maybe it's something that Jesus is convicting you on even now. You say, well, Lord, I'm an Adventist, I go to church, but sometimes I'm still tied to the world. The call from Jesus is, come out of her, my people. The time for us, the time to be 100% for Jesus is now. Fully dedicated to Jesus, it's now. After all, we want to be empty vessels that can be filled with the Holy Spirit. So my prayer is, Lord, please get me ready. Do whatever you have to do in my heart and in my life that I can be used by you to fulfill the prophecies of Revelation. Is that your desire? Do you want to be one of those angels with a loud voice? If that's your desire, let's stand as we close in prayer this evening. I think it's appropriate. If that's your desire, stand as we have our closing prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we've looked at some very important truths from Scripture over the past few nights together. Father, some of them are very sobering. We realize that we are living in amazing times where prophecy is being fulfilled before our very own eyes. And Lord, we've, we've seen that uh, you are calling people, calling people to come out of religious confusion and make their stand upon the Word of God. But Lord, you are calling us individually. You're calling families. You're calling couples to to make a stand on truth, Lord. You know those areas in our hearts and our lives that perhaps we're struggling with to let go of, to, to give to you. But tonight, Lord, we don't want anything standing in the way. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for our shortcomings, for our sins. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for the promise that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, use us. Like the disciples in the upper room, we look to ourselves and we think, how on earth could we ever, ever fulfill 
the commission of taking the gospel to the world, but somehow, Lord, you were able to use them. And Father, you can use us. Please, Lord, bless this conference. Bless the churches. Bless the members, Lord, as together we take this great commission seriously to do everything we can to tell people about Jesus. For this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.